Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 and read through verse uh, 25. Uh, ordinarily, let me say, before you, uh, when you come to a passage in the Bible that has the word therefore, that usually points you back to the argument that's been made. But when you see therefore and then since, um, that's like at the beginning of one of those TV episodes that said previously on whatever. Um, so when the writer of Hebrews says therefore since, he summarizes what he's been saying in the verses prior. And so um, that's how he begins uh, several of these verses. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word. The term frozen binomial may be new to you. Um, it's not important that you know that term, but you know exactly what a frozen binomial is. If I were to tell you I were walking forth and back, uh, and I were looking for pepper and salt, something about that just sounds like fingernails on a blackboard, doesn't it? There, there are words that go in a certain order, uh, the way our minds think uh, in, in English. And those are called frozen binomials. If I told you that I needed to tie up a few ends and odds before quitting for the day, that just doesn't sound right, does it? Or we were going to engage in a little error and trial. Um, you have to think, oh, trial and error. Um, maybe the worst one of these that would make absolutely no sense is if I told you we were going to go out uh, for some roll and rock uh, you, that something's just weird about that. And more seriously in life, um, things properly go one before another. If you were to go have surgery and then they gave you anesthesia, it wouldn't be a very pleasant experience. Um, students, if you were to get your grades um, and then try to do the work, Something just isn't right about that. Um, you would end up being like the rooster who thinks because he goes out and makes noise every morning that that's what makes the sun come up. And of course we know that's not the case. In the gospel, in what God has revealed to us in the scriptures, the indicative always precedes the imperative. God doesn't say, do this, and then let me tell you what the benefits are of your doing that. Now, the logic of the gospel is always, this is what God has done in Christ. This is who he is, and this is how you have been saved. It is a gift of God. It's nothing you've earned. 
And now, in light of what God has done, now this is how you ought to respond. This is what you ought to do. Um, a great theologian of the early 19th or 20th century wrote a little simple book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And we always want to get that order right, that it's been accomplished by Christ Jesus. And then we begin to apply that in our lives. If we get that order inverted, then we'll begin to think, okay, now these are the to-dos I have to do. And if I can check enough marks on my to-do list of getting right before God, then perhaps, hopefully, possibly, he might accept me. And you see that that legalism would just be crippling, and it would it would be a horrible way to live. But praise God, we don't earn our salvation, but in fact, God reveals to us who he is and his marvelous love for sinners and rebels like us. And then, only after that, does he call us to respond in obedience. Um, I want us to look in these verses this morning in Hebrews chapter 10 and see that logic of redemption that has been accomplished and then redemption that is applied to us and then redemption that we respond to. There's there's a gospel logic to this passage this morning as we see our privileges. First, redemption accomplished. Look in verse 19. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is language referring back to the temple that stood in Jerusalem. It would have still been standing when uh, Hebrews was written. And of course, there's also the imagery that the temple was a copy of the tabernacle, that goes back to Moses and the children of Israel after God redeems them from slavery in Egypt. Then he says, now build this tabernacle. And he gives very specific instructions of what that tabernacle is supposed to be like. Uh, as that uh, tabernacle, as uh, is, is the temple was built, there was the outer court and there were the places that that of course there was the court of the gentiles then inside of that was the outer court and that's where you came and you brought your sacrifice and the priest met you and uh, he would handle the sacrifice and then he would take that into the holy place and only the priest could go in there and then within that was a, a somewhere called the most holy place And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where the cherubim over the top of the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant, symbolized the the holiness of God and symbolized the, the rebellion of men and women and the provision that God had made for them. And the high priest was the only one who could go in there. And he could only go one day a year. And he went in for a very specific purpose, to to sprinkle uh, the blood uh, that was there symbolizing the uh, the shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sins. And you remember when Jesus dies on the cross, that veil, I mean, we're talking about not just a little curtain. We're talking about even thicker than like a, if you've ever been around a stage or an auditorium and they have those really big, thick curtains. This is a curtain that would have been much thicker than that. 
It was a curtain that protected people from the overwhelming glory of God inside that place. And we, when Jesus on the cross dies, we're told when he, in the moment when he died, that the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was split in two. And this place that had been previously closed off, that only the high priest could enter, now had been opened up miraculously and wonderfully. And it had been opened for a reason. It wasn't just vandalized, but it had this purpose that it had to, of separation between God and man had been ended. There was no need for that anymore. Christ Jesus' work was finished. And now, just as man had dwelt with God in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve had, now we would dwell with Christ. And so that new and living way had been opened. We're told in verse 19 that we have confidence to enter the holy place. We, we don't go sheepishly. We, we don't go as those who don't have, you know, the badge. Maybe some of you work in offices and you need a, a certain badge or, or ID tag to get in. And maybe you have to swipe it or hold it up to a reader. You have confidence that I wouldn't have if I didn't have that badge to get into that place. But it gives us confidence to enter that place. And we see that confidence comes by the blood of Jesus at the end of verse 19. And it's a confidence to stay. It's a confidence this to enter this place. Remember, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us in the previous chapters that that earthly temple was simply a copy. It was a replica It was an imitation of the heavenly temple, of the place where God dwells. And now, as this curtain is rent in two, we don't cower back like uh, uh, perhaps after a tornado or something and the destruction is there and and we, we don't know if we should go in or not. But instead, we have confidence to enter uh, that temple through the blood of Christ Jesus, the The royal family at Buckingham Palace doesn't need a badge to get in. They don't walk sheepishly hoping that maybe it's okay if they go in this room or that. But no, that is home. And they have the the right and the privilege because of their bloodline to be there. And so too, we have confidence to enter the holy places, verse 19, by the blood of Jesus The blood pleads. The blood is that Christ Jesus shedding of his blood that we will um, remember as we gather around the table in a few minutes is that which grants us access. And it's not a blood that we sort of take in with us like a ticket or like a security badge. It's blood that he has offered once for all. And so that way is new and living and it comes by the blood of Christ In May of 1863, Stonewall Jackson, uh, during the war between the states, had been shot and eventually died of pneumonia as he was recovering from the amputation of his arm. And he was dearly loved by soldiers, and uh, his body uh, lay in state in the Virginia state capitol. And veterans who had served under him 
uh, lined up by the hundreds to come and to, to pass by and to, to see their beloved leader just one last time. And it came late in the afternoon, and the, the governor of Virginia gave the order to the guards, it's okay, it's time to close, we're, we're done for the day. One old veteran comes up with, a, with, a, uh, with one leg and only one arm, and he, he begs to get in, and the governor of Virginia says to the guards, his wounds have earned him entrance, open the doors. And so too, the wounds of Christ Jesus have given us entrance. Charles Wesley wrote so beautifully in Arise, My Soul Arise. He says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive they, they cry. Christ Jesus has done this, given us this access by his blood. We're told in verse 20 that it is a new and living way. This isn't just a, an accident that happened that, that we, we get access, but in fact, it is, it is a one-time event that is open permanently, this new and living way. It, it's, it's a way that gives life to us as we enter that way. It's like a new road maybe that you've taken that is so much better than the old road. And, and there, there, there are ways that it's, it's been designed, and so it's much faster, say, to get to your destination when you're driving on a new road. And this is a new road that is superior to the old, and it stays open. And friends, we have the, this all achieved, as we read in verse 21, by our great high priest. This great high priest in the Bible is always a mediator. He is the one who went into the Holy of Holies and he was, he was representing the people before God and he was representing God before the people. He was the one who interceded. He was the one who made sacrifices. He was the one who prayed for the people of God before him. And we're told this great high priest goes in and He's finished. He's completed the work that the priest was always going in every year. And every morning, like that old Dunkin' Donuts commercial, when the man says, gets up and he swings his legs off the bed and he said, I have to make the donuts. Every single morning I have to make the donuts. The high priest came in to do his work. And all of the priests came in and every day there was the blood of bulls and goats. And it just went on day after day after day. And we're given uh, guidance on, and the people of God were given guidance on exactly how to build the tabernacle and then the temple. And detailed instructions about all the tools they would use and all of the furniture. But do you know there was one piece of furniture that did not, uh, was not anywhere to be found in the temple? And that was a chair. Because the priest could never sit down. Because his work was never finished. And God tells us in the scriptures that now Christ Jesus has sat down. He sits down at the Father's right hand. He is that great high priest. And he's not just cosmically out there, the great high priest. He is your great high priest. It's, it's like if you, uh, maybe in your building, there's security, or maybe you know a, a police officer that works the area around where you live. 
And isn't it comforting when you see that person or you, you come up to this place and you, you know the person who is the one who's granting entrance. And they know you and maybe you don't even have to, to pull out your ID or your badge because you know somebody. And that is this great high priest. And we're told earlier in Hebrews, we don't have time to look at it this morning, that he is not a servant like Moses, but he's a son. Whoever has access, whoever lives to intercede for his people. Beloved, he is the blessing. We, we get entrance to this place. We have access to this place. And he is there. And we have fellowship with him. There's an intimacy there. Well, let's move on from the accomplishment that Christ has done to, to how that's applied to us. Look in verse 22 again. These are things that God has done, and he does them in us. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is a new heart. The prophet Jeremiah would look out hundreds of years and he would see the time in chapter 31 and 32 and 33 where there would be a new covenant. And he would, God would take away our hearts of stone, our hearts that are hardened and resistant to him. And he would instead replace them with a heart of flesh. And we would, we would know God and we would have an undivided heart. And we wouldn't just go through the motions. Do you remember perhaps when you first came to faith in Christ and what had felt like just sort of dull, empty motions that you went through when maybe someone dragged you to church and the thing that was boring and you, you, you got nothing from it. And suddenly when God caused the scales to fall from your eyes, this was now the most wonderful, most interesting thing in all the world. And you couldn't get enough. That is this true heart that we're given in verse 22 when we draw near with a true heart. And we come also in verse 22 with full assurance of faith. Just in the next chapter of, of Hebrews, at the beginning of chapter 11, the writer will, will speak of faith as being the, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is not the assurance of feeling. This is not the assurance of sort of hoping that it all works out. No, I can see right now the people bringing in lunch. You can't see them. So you're hoping that they show up with lunch. But you see, I can see them bringing in lunch. So I have a, a confidence and an assurance that comes, if you will, that I don't have to have by faith because I have it by sight right now. But, but this full assurance of faith, this certain confidence that Christians can have is God has made his promises. And friends, that's why we look not to ourselves. We, we don't, when, when you th are thinking about your faith, it isn't how much you can sort of muster up and work up and, you know, repeat to yourself over and over how many times I'm going to have faith. I'm going to have bigger faith. I'm going to have greater faith. Faith is not the effort we expend. It's the object of our faith. It is, it is even a weak faith that is looking upon a great Savior. 
is we turn not inward trying to work up some feeling or some conviction, but it is a gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ who has opened this new and living way, who gives us this full assurance that we now can walk by uh, faith and until that day when we walk by sight. And that full assurance that, that I have been cleansed of my sin and God is cleansing me and he has adopted me and he is making more and more of me into the family likeness. And that, that as I look back, I really am beginning to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And that one day, by faith, I know that every tear will be wiped away. And sin will be no more. And death will be no more. And I walk by faith and by confidence in that. And that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we will never get there on our own, but it's a gift that God's Spirit gives us to, to see the world with spiritual eyes. And he goes on in verse 22, speaking about a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. God gives us a conviction that, that what Jesus did, that this work that Jesus has done that the writer has described in chapter 9 really has done something. That it's, that it's effective, that, that it's, it's sprinkled clean, the, the objective reality of what Jesus now subjectively I know in my life. The song, the, the wonderful old hymn that's been sort of remade, I think, by the, by the Gettys. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. And this, this heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is, is, is coming from that. We're told in verse 22, uh, this, the heart sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. When sacrifices were made in that earthly temple, the blood was poured out and the blood would have been sprinkled by the priest. It would have been sprinkled on the altar. I'm not making a case for infant baptism, I, I promise. Uh, but the, the blood would have been sprinkled and then the sacrifice would have been washed. And there was a big laver there and the, the priest would, would wash the sacrifice and he would wash his hands. And the prophet Ezekiel back in Ezekiel 36 is looking forward to this day when Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Don't you know that feeling when you, maybe you've been going hard uh, for a day or a day and a half and you've gotten sweaty and you just feel nasty and that feeling of, oh, if I could just get a good shower and feel clean again. Or maybe you've been in the hospital and you're waiting to get to a point in your recovery and things will begin to be normal when you can just get a shower and feel clean. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us that this, this conscience has been sprinkled clean and the body has been washed with pure water, that there is an outward transformation that is taking place in us, that we have been washed clean, that we are washed clean and beginning to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
And though we see our sin more prominently and we're even more aware of it and we're tempted to think we're, we're actually regressing in the Christian life, God is showing us more and more of the work he is doing and has yet to do in us. Well, quickly, that brings us finally, not just redemption accomplished and redemption applied, but now what I'll call redemption responded, even though it's kind of responded to uh, as we respond. We're given commands in, the, in these verses. In, of course, in, chapter, in verse 22, the writer says, let us draw near. We draw near as we come to worship. We draw near as we come to the table. We're not like a, a puppy who has been beaten or, or kicked around and cowers in the corner whenever someone comes near it. You see, our sin ought to do that to us. It ought to cause us before a holy God to cower and to fear that we'll be destroyed any moment. But now with the confidence that we have, because of the one who by his blood has opened the new and living way, now he invites us. That's what we do fundamentally in the call to worship, in the worship at the beginning of the service. is It's saying, let us draw near. Let us come before the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to draw near Lord's Day by Lord's Day, but also to draw near. We have the blessing of having printed Bibles. How many Bibles do you have around your house if you're like most Christians? I, I'm embarrassed to think about how many Bibles are around my house. And yet I struggle some days in busyness to get around to reading one of them. But to draw near to God in the scriptures, to draw near to him in prayer, to, to pray without ceasing, to, to have a, a time of prayer, but also to, to through the course of the day, just constantly in a conversation with the Lord. Friends, that nearness has to be cultivated. I confess there are times I get up in the morning and I can't wait to get to the Bible. And then there are all the other days <laughs> that I get up. And there, there's some discipline required in drawing near. And you may not feel it one day. But you will feel and certainly know the cumulative effect of doing that and being in that habit of drawing near. And indeed, we're commanded and the provision has been made. We're told in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. There is a content to what we believe. The, we uh, said, the, the uh, or we will in a few moments, uh, the Apostles' Creed. These things which we believe, these things upon which we stake our very life. And we are clinging to them as to what is true. The recipients of the book of Hebrews were tempted to go back to the sacrifices. They were tempted to go back to the temple and those things which were foreshadowing. How strange would it be if, if you decided, you know, instead of looking at the real object, I think I just want to look at the shadow that it casts. Or if you uh, married your spouse and you, you all then went on the honeymoon, and, but if all I wanted to do was sit and look at a picture of my wife, that'd be strange if she were sitting in the same room. And so too, they were tempted to go back to the shadows, to go back to the things that were pointing forward to the reality. And so we want to hold fast the confession of our hope. That requires rehearsing and reciting and remembering. Because there is a conspiracy of the world and the flesh and the devil to make you and me forget or to make us think that these things are not important. 
are not relevant to everyday life. Which is why, verse 24, we need to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, if there is something that is easy to do in the polarized times in which we live, the hyper-political times in which we live, it is easy to stir somebody up, to uh, point them to a particular tweet or a particular Facebook post, or to encourage them, depending on their political persuasion, to watch MSNBC or to watch Fox News. Oh, stirring up, we, we understand. Uh, some people just enjoy doing that sometimes, just stirring other people up. But this is stirring up one another to love and good works, to remember the gospel, to believe the gospel. When I stir you up to love and good works, I'm reminding you of the blessing of what God has accomplished and what he has applied in our li- in my life and in yours. What is the new reality? And I think I said in Sunday school, the Christian life is a one another kind of community. I mean, you could be a Christian and not be a part of a church and, and be connected to a group of other Christians in membership. But the Bible just doesn't know that kind of category. The, the, the Bible doesn't doesn't know what it is to not be in a place where we can do the one another's with each other, that we can outdo one another in showing hospitality, that we can love one another, that we can be kind to one another, that we can be tenderhearted to one another, we can serve one another. Go through some time with your search app on your phone or something and look at all of the one another's in the New Testament. It takes a body to to grow, and that's what the writer is getting Uh, to in verse 24, to stir one another up toward love and good works. And then this final command in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Now, in times of COVID, people have learned how to not meet together. Um, Some of us have gotten awfully comfortable with watching some great church somewhere or listening to some sermon on our podcast feed. And those are wonderful supplements and additions. But again, you and I can't do the one another's unless we're actually together meeting with each other as often as we can. And YouTube is just not the same. And podcasts are not the same. And you and I need to be with one another. And you may say, well, yeah, but I don't have the gifts to like stand up and teach or preach or whatnot. I, I'm just going to kind of, all I can really do is come and sit. Friends, regardless of your giftedness, the command is don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And you may encourage through your words. You may encourage through how you serve, and I hope you are. But you may also just encourage by physically being there, by testifying that you believe in the resurrection of the dead, by testifying to the person who is, who is they get up on Sunday morning says, I think this is the last week I can do this. I, I just, it's not working for me. And perhaps as they come and you're in worship and they see others in worship, the Lord uses that to spur them on. There was a lady in our church in Greensboro who had gotten married later in life after she lived with an adult parent and that parent eventually died and she married a much older man and it was a really an unhappy 
uh, marriage, of being unequally yoked, and she came to realize that later in life. And um, her husband got sick somewhat suddenly and within a few days had died. And she called me on a Saturday night to tell me that he had died. And so we talked on the phone some. And that Sunday morning, she was usually early to worship, looked up, and here comes Karen walking in. He's like, Karen, what, what are you doing here? And she said, where else would I be this morning? What, what am I going to sit home and die? I need to be with the rest of you this morning. And friends, how true that is. And that, in its own way, Karen was testifying that she was not neglecting to meet together. I'm not saying there aren't times when you're sick. I'm not saying there aren't uh, circumstances where um, we're just not maybe ready to face people. But when you have a choice, lean into the body of Christ. Lean into one another. You know, there are times when I don't want to do that. There are times when I don't want to do my duty. And the only thing that will get me there is to look to Christ Jesus and to see the Father's love in sending His Son and to see the Spirit applying that and transforming me from one degree of glory to another. And then the duties that are listed in the later, latter part of this passage as I focus on the delights, as I focus on what God has done, now that have-to duty becomes a get-to. And I get to go and be with brothers and sisters. And I get to hold fast my confession. And I get to draw near as I look at Jesus. Friends, getting this order is critical. Because God has achieved it. And God has applied it. And now you and I get to walk together in new life. Let's pray.